Hey, Chris Manning here from Locked On Cavs. Coming up on today's show, Evan and I talk to Rob Mahoney, the great NBA writer from The Ringer about the Cavs, obviously, but specifically getting into the draft, the outlook for the team, and then also talking about the Cavs through the prism of Rob's work. Rob is, for me, I think maybe my favorite writer to read on an article-to-article basis because I always feel like I learn something new or, or think about something in a different way from him, and there's no higher compliment I can pay. Um, so I hope you guys like this episode. Again, thanks to Rob for, for coming on and, and gracing us with his presence. Again, he's a massive favorite of mine, so uh, I got to get in and talk to people I really, really admire. It's always a lot of fun. Also want to let you know that today's episode is brought to you by Built Bar. Go to BuiltBar.com and use promo code LOCKEDON and you get 20% off your next order. You are Locked On Cavaliers, your daily Cleveland Cavaliers podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Cleveland Cavaliers select Darius Garland from Vanderbilt University. Joining us now is the great, the excellent Rob Mahoney from The Ringer. Rob, what's up, man? How are you? Not a lot. Enjoying this apparently very brief offseason we're having, uh, but it's good to be here. Yeah, we. Uh, it's going to be quick. Um, as people covering a Delete 8 team, Evan and I are very excited for that because we we are just, like, starved for content. We can only do so many, like, what is Andre Drummond's fit on the Cavs podcast and blog posts before our brains just melt into incomplete mush. For real, though. Um, <laughs> before we get started, Rob, I do have a quick question for you. Why Falco? Yeah. Honestly, I picked it. When I started my Twitter account in 2008, and it just at this point we're just coasting it out. You know, we've come too far to change it, so we're going to stick with Falco Original Star Fox Edition. I respect it. Okay, Chris, proceed to the actual basketball discussion. This is a burning question I've always had. The Cavs are like like sometimes wholly irrelevant, and I can understand sometimes when I have when like when people not Rob, but like when people are like, "Hey, Larry Dance, is that he's on a bad team? Is he actually good on left?" And I have to like defend the sanctity of Larry Nance Jr. because that's just what my life has come to. Um, Some things are worth defending, starting with Larry Nance. Look, I had to spend 2018 playoffs also defending Jeff Green and like being at the finals and like talking to people, and being like Jeff Green actually was good up until this. I was it, it was it was a tough hang it's trying to tell other media people. I was like trying to like to prove that I was smart and and like had not with that it was you know that he was actually decent that year. But Rob, when you think about the the current Cavs as they are. Um, it's been a while, you know, it's, they're just a team that is still obviously going through a lot of things. John, they had the whole John Beeline thing. Now JB Bickerstaff's here. Andre Drummond is on this team. Kevin Love is still on this team. When you think about what this team is, do you, what is your just sort of broad take on what they are? I mean, they're definitely a team that needs a lot still and, you know, has a long way to go in terms of their rebuild. I think that starts with, you know, you look up and down this roster and the way that comes together on the court. To me, it's a group that like yearns for versatility. There's a lot of guys who can do specific things okay or well. There aren't a lot of guys that give you that flexibility that would make you be able to survive a longer playoff run if you could even get to the playoffs, that give you that adaptability that make you competent on an NBA stage. So I think you know, 
obviously some of that comes with getting more star level players who can make you more maneuverable in that way. But even some of the role guys on the team, you just, everyone kind of leaves you wanting a little more. And some of the young guys will grow into that part of their games. They'll develop that kind of nuance and, and they'll, they'll flesh things out. But, you know, there's going to have to be some pretty considerable roster changes between now and then whenever the Cavs are ultimately good again. Rob, I guess my question for you is um, the Cavs have kind of quietly said, not quietly, but they've been vocal about it, I should really say, but it's mostly Colin Sexton and J.B. Bickerstaff and then Kobe Altman supported their statements where the Cavs have the ambitions to be a playoff team next year. And Chris and I roll our eyes at this notion since we cover them locally. But I guess on a national scale, do you think this is – as unrealistic as we think it is? I mean, I don't see it personally, but there's there's a lot of teams that are in that group. You know, the Hawks are in this conversation too, as far as like deep lottery teams from last year that have those kinds of ambitions. I think what gives them the room to kind of make those statements and to dream a little bigger is just that the back end of the East is so weak. And, and you know, like you can break into the eighth or seventh seed in the East. Like that's a, that's a feasible thing for these teams to aspire to as to what the cost of doing it would be and whether it's good for, you know, the long-term vision of your team, that's kind of a different conversation. But I think, you know, the Cavs at least, you know, you can look at the Drummond deal as part of this where, you know, let's say he stays on the team beyond the trade deadline and and they're a competitive team and they're really gunning for that eighth spot or what have you, you know, they haven't compromised anything in terms of what the future of the team would be. Now that conversation changes if you commit hundreds of millions of dollars to him on his next contract, but at, at least, you know, where we are now, I think Cleveland is at least positioned to, you know, make a run at things, see how good you are, you know, push that into the season and make those decisions later and see how far some of these younger guys can develop in the first couple months of the season. I think you're dead on about the the roster versatility. It's something that I think Evan and I both we talk about a lot and just wonder like why they, there are certain things. But when you when you look at the the way the roster is built now and and Drummond obviously kind of being the literally and figuratively kind of probably biggest unknown in that what do you just make of of that kind of deal taking the and how it's aged i'm of the of the mind that it's kind of already aged a little poorly for some reasons that are that are just maybe just my kind of take and kind of, and kind of just my personal preference on what a player kind of is but what do you just think of that and then this it is kind of a, a weird hodgepodge of like guys that are still young sexton kevin porter jr uh, Darius Garland and then Kevin Love, Larry Nance Jr., Andre Drummond. What do you, what do you, what does that mix with a guy like Drummond who is looking to get paid? Um, kind of, what, what does that mix kind of signal to you in some ways? I mean, I think it signals that Drummond is ultimately kind of a transient piece, and, and that's where this is tricky because the opinions of Drummond around the league. I mean, I think it's fair to say he's kind of worn out his welcome in terms of being a star level player. Now, it only takes one, whether it's a potential trade partner, whether it's a, you know, a team in free agency later down the line to pay him whatever he wants. Some team to look at, you know, a guy who can put up huge box score numbers, who's going to be a dominant force for you on the glass, who can be a good finisher, who has these very positive attributes. You know, some team's going to be willing to overlook that. I think ultimately, you know, what he can't do defensively, some of the gaps in his game, some of those aspects. You know, I think there will be takers for Andre Drummond at some point. The question is whether the Cavs are a part of that market for him for that or not, or whether they have to ultimately play out the season with him on the roster. Cause he doesn't really fit the timeline of what else you have working here. I mean, it's so much of what the Cavs have going is, is such a long-term plan. I mean, that's kind of when you commit to Colin Sexton and Darius Garland up front, you know, you're giving yourself a long runway to figure out how you want to use those two guys, whether both of them will ultimately be on the team long-term, whether they can play together. Like that's a long-term project to start. 
much less filling out the rest of the roster in a way that can complement them or kind of offset whatever one of them can or can't do well. I guess it's just, you give me a good launching point to ask my next question here. The, the Cavs really do seem like they are trying to commit to Colin Sexton and Darius Garland as their backcourt of the future. And I think it's unrealistic. And I, I feel like Chris feels it like the same way. And like the, the Cavs have cited, you know, Portland being their example of why they're trying this experiment. But do you feel that it's possible for them to really make this work, especially on the defensive side of the ball? Because I've watched enough of those two playing together to realize like they need to split this up and figure out who is better suited off the bench and who's better suited starting. And I guess that's just where it kind of gets clunky for me. And I guess I just wonder how you feel about the fit between just having to start Sexton and Garland in tandem together. I mean, I think you could port- you can point to Portland in a lot of ways and the relative success that they've had, but so much of what caps that team's potential is the size of its backcourt. You know, there's there's a reason why us in the media are always talking about CJ McCollum trade rumors. And it's, it's not because the Blazers don't want him. It's because at some point you have to make a, you have to make certain concessions to be competitive on the wing, to have the kind of length defensively that you need to have the offsetting uh, skill sets that you need. And I mean, as far as that comparison too, I, you know, regardless of what their listed heights are, Lillard in particular plays much bigger to me than either Sexton or Garland does. And just in terms of what he can do defensively has a little more strength to him that's not a fair comparison for guys that are as young as they are. You know, I'm sure they're going to fill out and get a little stronger as we go here. I'm not super optimistic on that pairing. And especially, you know, I'm probably coming at it um, more from a Kevin Porter Jr. kind of place in terms of, you know, fitting him into the wing or the backcourt or wherever you want to put him positionally. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of like that fit a little bit better alongside one of those guards. And I'm, I'm probably more on the Sexton side of things in the Garland side of things, but it's, it's tough. I mean, you know, you invest in these guys with draft picks, you invest in their development, you want to see them succeed if you're the team that ultimately drafted them, but I, I'm just not sure about that fit. Today's podcast is brought to you by Built Bar. Built Bar is obviously the best tasting protein bar ever, and I can't recommend Built Bar enough. There are 18 amazing flavors right now, including six new ones cookies and cream, apple almond crisp, carrot cake, caramel brownie, lemon almond cheesecake, and carrot cake. There are also the 12 original flavors, including banana bread, double chocolate, peanut butter brownie, and mint brownie. Bill Bars are great for the health-conscious guy. They help you lose or maintain your weight while indulging in a delicious treat. They're low-calorie, low-sugar, high-protein, high-fiber, great for that keto diet. And look, I eat one pretty much every day um, as I'm trying to get a little healthier here in the ongoing pandemic, getting my workouts in still, and I need that protein. And a go-to for me is the cookies and cream, which again, 17 grams of protein, 130 calories, 4 grams of sugar, and 4 grams of net carbs. I'm probably going to go eat one after I finish recording this ad. Right now, you get a free cooler with purchase while supplies last, and go to BuiltBar.com and use promo code LOCKEDON, and you get 20% off your next order. Again, promo code LOCKEDON for 20% off at BuiltBar.com. Yeah, and, and I think the, the other thing I'll, I, that I've come to really think and probably maybe spending too much time thinking about this this offseason is the, one of the reasons Portland, at least the last couple of years, has worked is like they have use of Nurkic if, as, as they're big. Like if, and if you're going to play those two guards – and still build like a what like a little bit averageish league defense that can at least be competent in what they're doing. Those guys buy in number one, but number two, you have a an, a really really high level defensive big man in, in Nurkic who even though he's playing a lot of drop coverage, he's very active, he's aware, like he's playing. And then like if if you want to find that piece, 
Drummond's that's just not what Drummond is. Um, and and that's you know a little bit of a that 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 kind of hinders what you're doing, especially when you don't have you know I, I'm a Kevin Love believer, and we're going to talk about him here in a second. But you know it's he, that's not what he is either. But uh, Rob, I want to we're going to turn to your work a little bit. You wrote a couple really really. I think fantastic must pieces um, at the ringer one about big men passing specifically passing fives and one through LeBron through the eyes of his big men. Um, let's start with the big men passing. I actually, the reason the, the to inside baseball, the, I actually DM'd you or tweeted about this. And then you followed me and t- DM me back because you're, you're a hero. And I asked you like, okay, Kevin love passing big men. I feel like this is underutilized obviously the, the the numbers say that he doesn't pass as much that he's more of a spacer now in your mind do you think that is possible to if it's not cleveland if it's somewhere else that that version of kevin love even if it's not all the way back to minnesota rick edelman whatever like is a version of that kevin love still possible to exist is that a way he can adapt to, to the league now that's very, i think very different than it was you know when he was posting those monster numbers with the wolves Oh, absolutely. And I don't think those things are mutually exclusive either. You know, I, I think where the conversation with big men gets bogged down and overcomplicated is in that idea that, oh, you know, in a modern offense, we need at least one of our four or five to be a spacer, to be a pure kind of spot up guy in the perimeter, clear, you know, the shot blocker out of the paint, do, you know, give us all the things we need to run a modern offense. And, you know, hand in hand with that is the idea that if you have young guards on your team in particular, you want to give them a certain license to run offense, to learn on the job. I think you can do both of those things at once. And, you know, the dribble handoff game is so useful in that particular way. You know, I, I, you know I'm not saying he's going to be Minnesota Kevin Love, whether for the Cavs or for any team at this point, but there's a whole spectrum of possibility between Kevin Love standing in the corner and Minnesota Kevin Love to explore. And you can really toggle with that a little bit. You can take some off the plate of a Sexton or a Garland or a Porter. You can put those guys in more comfortable positions. You can get them so they're, they have momentum coming off of a handoff versus having to start a play completely dry with no advantage. And it's amazing what you can do in those circumstances, especially like Garland is a guy who can see angles. Like he, he definitely has the vision to make smart individual passes, but you need a little help getting him the momentum, getting him into spots where he can make those decisions. Some of that's because of his size. And to me, a guy like Love is the, is the element that allows you to do that, that gives you a little more room because you have to respect him as a three-point shooter if he's handing off and then popping to the arc or if he's already standing there. I just think there's a lot of opportunity there. And it goes really league-wide. There's a lot of guys who could have this skill set if they were kind of pushed in that way. Love just happens to be one who kind of has it already. I guess this is a follow-up to that. Um, it seems like something the Cavs have just kind of ignored. And I spoke with the J.B. Bickerstaff about this, and he said that, the young guards need to be brought along slowly, obviously, because they're learning to play in a man's league, and um, they're going to lean a little bit more on their big men, with Kevin Love being the focal point here. But do you think Larry Nance Jr. is kind of an underrated option for this as well? Because Chris and I have at least noticed that Larry's growth and development from his time as a Laker to what he's become now as a Cavalier is just kind of unexpected. Uh, he was a high-explosive uh four or five who would just you know attack the rim and have impressive dunks and now he's a little bit of a jack of all trades master of none and do you think cleveland just kind of having a little bit of a stable of these big men's is a step in the right direction and do you find it encouraging that jb bickerstaff acknowledges at least what he shared with me that yeah this is something that we need to be focusing on especially with young guards that are just kind of 
like Garland can make the reads, like you said, but the playmaking still needs to come. And Sexton has shown a little bit of potential under Bickerstaff's offense, even if it was a little simplified, but he still has a long ways to go in terms of playmaking. So do you think the Cavs are heading in the right direction in that regard? I think they could be. And some of it is we just don't know. I mean, honestly, not just with the Cavs, but what a J.B. Bickerstaff coach team when he has actual authority looks like. You know, this is a guy who's had a lot of a lot of opportunities, but a lot of interim opportunities. So I'm very curious to see, you know, given, you know, even if it will be a truncated training camp, given a chance to kind of install his stuff, to run the team the way he wants to, to give them really a sense of what their concepts are going to be, whether that involves this, this big man stuff or not. I'm, I'm very curious to see what that looks like, but I, I do think that's encouraging. And, and Nance is a guy who is kind of on the other end of the spectrum of this particular conversation where, you know, he's less of a, a Nikola Jokic or a Mark Gasol and more of a Bam out of bio type, as you were saying, like a really intuitive player in terms of feel for the game, but who can dive, who had, I think could have that kind of handoff and, and, you know, a certain level of facilitation and playmaking. He's not going to be Bam, but just in terms of the dynamism of what he can get you, hand, you know, they're handing the ball off or faking it, keeping it, and then diving quickly to the rim. There's a lot of potential there. I think, you know, I'm, I'm pretty high on Nance in terms of his fit in a lot of different potential systems. He's, he's really is one of the more flexible Cavaliers in that way. And I think if, if they're open to that, if they're open to experimenting with some of this stuff, it could make their guards look a lot better and kind of facilitate their learning curve by taking some of it off their plate just because, you know, whether Sexton or Garland, I feel like those guys, they use so much of their energy just trying to keep their heads above water in a sense. They're not actually combating what defenses are throwing at them yet. They're not really reading the game in that way. Maybe running the, a little more offense through the bigs is a way to get them to to see things more clearly, to have more attention, to focus on the bigger picture rather than just how do I beat this matchup. I think the JB point is I think a smart one, just because like they a when we talk we talked to him and we talked to Lindsey Gottlieb, they they talked about wanting to get stuff on tape in their little bubble workouts to like actually see if it could work. And it's obviously no drum in there. Kevin left early and stuff, but you're trying to see what stuff actually can work, and it, it tells me that they don't know. 100 percent what they're doing yet and then the other part of that is you know like you you just they changed like sexton in particular has played for four head coaches already he played for tyloo he played for larry drew he played for john beeline and he and he's played for now jb bakerstaff that's like kind of a crazy churn um especially for a young guard when you're learning so much and having to kind of take on so much at a young age and he's had a lot thrown at him in a lot of ways um it's that i don't, I don't think that's easy as far as lebron understanding lebron there's the Kevin Love stuff in there is is great, but can we start with Zdrunas Ilgauskas and Anderson Verja? And what made you also wanting? Obviously, there's the 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 Bosch, the AD, the Love is kind of the headliners. But when you were talking, Carlos and, Boozer too, well, that was a name. And, I and didn't JJ expect. Hickson, as I have the piece up sure. now. What what made you want to be like? Okay, I'm gonna dive into also dive into these guys that were that were LeBron was really elevating, maybe even having to drag up a little bit more than he was some of the guys who we'd play with later that were much more talented. How did you end up talking about guys like that? And you know, Daniel Marshall's mentioned here as well. Well, I think all of it speaks to an element of LeBron's game that I've, I've always found to be among the most admirable, the most impressive, which is. You know, he's played so long at this point, and the game has changed so much over that term. He's always been there at the forefront of all those, you know, those evolutions of strategy, you know, going from a more ISO-driven league to a more pick-and-roll-based league to one that required him to post up more to now a, a very spaced offense to now a very switchable league that he, you know, he more than anyone else can pick his matchups and just brutalize them. 
he, he's always been in that conversation. He, you know, there, how many trends have really come and gone where the antidote isn't LeBron in some way? You know, he's, he's been you know, one step ahead of all those things. And to me, that conversation has to start with those, those early Cavs teams. And, you know, him and Z in particular, like that pick and pop game was so formative to him. And you can see it traced through, you know, when, you know, when they got to Miami together and it was a, a really important option for that team before they started playing Chris Bosh at the five and kind of planting the seeds of what spacing there could look like to, you know, on, you know, going further down the evolutionary chain to guys like Love and Channing Fry to these later spacers with the, the second Cleveland team and what, how that team would play. And so you almost can't get to one place without the other. And, you know, I, I was always really fascinated by those Mike Brown Cleveland teams in, in, in particular and what LeBron did with him. And, you know, as you were saying, not only the way he elevates certain guys, but really redeems them. Guys that, you know, like in Hickson's case, showed that in other situations, I, I'm not sure they're really NBA players at all. And yet with LeBron, oh, they're going to the NBA finals or they're going to the conference finals. They're, they're able to play at that level because you have a playmaker like him. I guess I'm just curious to ask, out of all the big men, I mean, you've spoke with quite a few uh, big men that have played with LeBron. Um, who was your favorite interview? Because, like I said, like Carlos Boozer definitely was a surprise. Uh, J.J. Hickson was a surprise as well. Um, those are just like the, their callbacks to the first LeBron era. And I'm just curious, since you spoke to so many of them, who was your favorite interview? I mean, Boozer and Channing Fry are both kind of famously very good interviews, just very talkative, friendly guys. Um, and Boozer in particular had a lot of stories about those early LeBron years and then also about you know playing with LeBron at the Olympics and stuff like that. And now that was one of the interesting threads that didn't make it into the story too was almost all these bigs that we're talking about, whether it's Bosch, whether it's Kevin Love, whether it's Anthony Davis now. you know, He had a minute there with Tyson Chandler on the Lakers. All of these guys are players he played with either at the same time he was playing with them in the NBA also for Team USA or had played with for Team USA previously. So there's there's definitely a trend in terms of him handpicking certain guys and the way they align with the upper tiers of USA basketball, as it were. And, you know, it's interesting to hear some of those stories. Uh, Fry in particular, you know, reliving uh, some of that series against the Hawks where he just went off, you know, and just kind of really wrecked their coverage was a, kind of a fun stroll down memory lane. So, when you play with LeBron, you kind of end up with these moments, these stories, these huge kind of flashbulb things in the NBA culture because you're playing deep into the playoffs almost every time, at least after those first couple of years. I think that results in, in some pretty interesting stuff that comes up with these guys as, as you're going through kind of their personal histories with them. Rob, it's obviously they're, they're kind of they've got kind of government I think the we'll, we'll we'll dissect this more and more kind of going forward but during those four years that he was back and they they obviously made the finals and the last year in particular he it was a really a him and, and me dragging this kind of effort how what was the, how good were the were those teams for those four years as you kind of think about them a little bit I, I think for me 2017 is the best team even though that team didn't win a title just because the offense was just ridiculous but how how good do you think those those teams were yeah, I mean, I think the 2017 team has to be considered, if not one of the best teams ever, certainly one of the best to not win. And that conversation is always tricky. You know, like you know, I've been a part of so many exercises over the years about the best teams of the decade or the best team since 2000 or you know whatever whatever the time frame may be. And there's a compulsion to put champions on that list, understandably. But as you were saying, it's possible for the 2017 team to be better than the 2016 team. It's better. It's possible for you know, the 2018 Rockets that lost to the Warriors to be considered a great team all time. I think the Cavs 
consistently were in that group. And they were, they're a hard team to evaluate historically because they didn't take the regular season very seriously. And they kind of showed that you don't have to when you have LeBron on your team, you know, to their credit. I think they understood that in a way that even some of the other uh, contenders at the time did not. But, you know, it's, it's a historical run in terms of that stretch of time. I mean, anytime you go to the finals, four straight trips is, is impressive as hell. But that 16-17 pairing in particular there really aren't many franchises that have a two-year run like that of that caliber, and again, that's that's kind of where the the category and the the company that LeBron puts. Now you I'm in. curious on the other end of the spectrum. Out of all these LeBron-led teams, and we'll kind of focus. I feel like Cleveland is going to be the answer here because Miami was super impressive, but I feel like we're going to be focusing in on this first LeBron era. And you're mentioning how you're fascinated about how Mike Brown ran the show with LeBron and with Big Z and Vergeau and. Carlos, even though Carlos Boozer wasn't there, but he was in part of that era, the first LeBron era, but he wasn't coached by Mike Brown from what I remember correctly. What do you think was the worst LeBron team out of like all of his big men? Cause like, <laughs> that's another quote. Cause it, it's a bit of a meme, isn't it? Where like in 2007, LeBron's like, they, yeah, LeBron dragged these guys to the finals and got swept by the Spurs. So I'm just curious, like you've done a lot of deep diving and research on this. Like what's the worst LeBron team that you've uh, kind of done your work on? I mean, if we want to focus on the big men aspect of it specifically, I think it might be that last one, the 2010 team, where they were really kind of throwing things at the wall to see what stuck. You know, Ben, that was a, I think Ben Wallace was still on the team at that point, or what, maybe he's actually gone, but there was definitely the Shaq Hickson, Elgowskis in his later years. You know, Verizhou was okay that season, but if, again, if he's your most reliable big, you're kind of in a tough spot. They were shoehorning Antoine Jameson into stuff, uh, you know, as best they could, but like, the idea that that team was as good as it was in spite of its front court situation was kind of a minor miracle. And, you know, I I think LeBron deserves a lot of credit for that, but I, you know, that was a really good defensive Mm -hmm. team in spite of that at a time when if you did have elite defensive bigs, you weren't a good defense period. And I think, you know, Mike Brown certainly deserves a lot of credit for that aspect of it. Yeah. Mike Brown, who (laughs) came back and obviously didn't work out the second time, but a very, interesting figure in Cavs history who I would he's love. the mayor of the arena yeah, when he came back with Golden State this year he was just walking through a lot like David Griffin when the Pelicans were in town he was dapping up the yeah. arena staff and acting like he was still running the show and I'm like <laughs> I respect it if you have that kind of legacy here I respect it yeah Chris Grant did not get that treatment uh who is now a Spurs a scout at least the last time that I saw him so uh yeah it just depends on what you do but Rob we'll, we'll get close to the end here as we wrap up what you looking at next season it's coming quick when you first saw that that like the December 22nd was the the, uh, the date that's kind of being put out there right now what was your reaction just the question of how we're going to put this all together from a safety standpoint I mean, it, you know, it's one thing to create a bubble, to run it, run a league in a bubble, which the NBA clearly has shown it can do very effectively from, you know, keeping everyone safe uh, in terms of the virus and testing very effectively treatment, preventing people who were infected from getting in a plus on all that stuff. Every other league that has tried to run operations out of its markets has run into serious problems pretty quickly. So, you know, if that's the plan, if that's what it looks like, and I think most indications are kind of pointed that way. How is this going to work? You know, you know what are what are kind of the bare, you know, the the benchmarks at which, you know, if a certain number of people test positive, we start thinking about shutting down or delaying or moving dates because the timeline that the league has set out here, if we are starting on December twenty second and looking to align, you know, the twenty twenty one to twenty two season on a more typical schedule, I don't know that there's a lot of wiggle room in terms of things like delays, which you would have to get into 
in a, in a COVID-19 world. You know, you have to be ready for that possibility. So I'm, I'm just trying to wrap my brain around how everything fits within this time frame within the season. And that's not even, you know, to say the, the off season, which we're going to have to cram into basically the space of a couple of weeks to try to make everything work. So it's, it's going to get messy really quickly, I think, if, if we end up going that way. But I think there's a lot of financial incentive Speaking to do Speaking of off-season before we go, and this is more of a Cavs-related question, do you think Andre Drummond will sign an extension with Cleveland, or do you think they'll ride it out and try to trade him by whenever the deadline ends up happening? It's a great question. And I, I wonder, too, how the kind of financial situation around the league is affecting this. Because in, you know, in normal league operations, I think they would be more inclined – to ride it out and try to trade him just because there may be more teams who are financially in a position to, you know, take a swing on him to try to invest, you know, in resigning him versus trying to get him on the open market. Cause they don't have the cap space to do so, but you know, they're willing to go over the cap to do it. But in a league where so many ownership groups don't have a lot of, you know, cash on hand necessarily, depending on their industry of choice and, you know, how they've made their money, it, it could get a little different. And that's why that's kind of where, if I'm a Cavs fan, I'm a little worried about the extension possibility. Not because it makes him untradeable or anything like that. Like I think I think Drummond would still be movable to the right team. But I, you know, I'm certainly more interested in the longer term future, the more patient future of this team that's built around the younger guys they have and can get in, you know, in this draft and future drafts, more so than, you know, what Drummond does to get you in the playoff picture immediately. I'm I'm not super interested in that shortcut and so committing lots of money to him does make me a little apprehensive. Yeah, it uh it's scares the shit out of me if he's gonna yeah. take a bunch of, if he's gonna sure. take threes and like dribble like that's where i if i was kobe Altman, i'd be like i don't i don't know about this um that it, the, the three-point thing is just like i don't i it just there's not like even like a it's not like channing fry where like he had the underlying numbers as a free throw shooter and and stuff to like take them it's like this has literally never been something you can do and he's like i'm gonna start shooting threes it's just like the red flag goes goes way way up um, for for that. But Rob, I want to ask you one last thing here. That's a little bit more of a question for for me specifically. You watch games. You obviously watch a ton of games, but and you're also you use Twitter, but you're not like as online as a lot of us are. Can you walk me through how you watch a game and like how you take notes on games? I just want to know like what your approach is when you're watching a game and trying to glean information from it and, and process it so you can write about it. Sure. I mean, the Twitter part of it is hard. Um, my general default state is during games not to be on Twitter, uh, both because I find it distracting and you also kind of get sucked into a little bit of the group think in terms of what happened on a given play. You may kind of miss things because you're riding along with the jokes and it's a good time. Like, I totally get it. It's harder now when so many people are still quarantined at home or you know, at least trying to stay, you know, keep their distance and be safe. You know, to, to tell people not to be on Twitter during a game feels like denying them one of the few kind of communal experiences we have right now. So I'm, I'm, I, I don't want to do that necessarily. But, you know, certainly if I'm trying to really glean something from a game, I'm trying to stay off it as much as possible. And it really is a lot about diagnosing what happened. You know, I think there's, a, there's a, such a natural instinct when you're watching to follow the ball, which is fine, to, to, you know, follow the shots, follow the dunks, follow the most exciting stuff on the floor. But if you have DVR, if you're watching on you know online in a way where you can you know jump back 10 seconds or 15 seconds, it's so amazing what you can learn when you kind of retrace and reverse engineer this stuff to find the little breakdowns that led to the big breakdowns that led to the open basket. So so much of what I'm doing is that is you know jumping back, rewinding, both as a way to kind of glean as much as I can, and also you know you're you're buying yourself some time so you can fast forward through commercials later. So it's it's all about kind of being economical because I'm going to pack in as many games as I can. 
and also just trying to understand what's going on on the floor because I am I am not a person who can watch something the first time and get everything. You know, I'm not I'm not a coach in that way. I don't have that level of experience. So I'm you know I'm trying to get in as many views of a play as possible, and it, it starts with that kind of capacity to to retrace the steps. Do you have a Do you have a favorite um, in terms of when you have to like watch a game on League Pass? If you, I know, like sometimes I'll watch games without without like with a broadcast crew, and just because like I don't want to hear, I just need to like watch it like silently or have like just some kind of like general music on. But do you have a favorite local broadcast crew when you're consuming all these games? It's a great question. Um, most of them, most of them, I could kind of take or leave. To be honest. Uh, I do watch a lot of games on mute or, you know, I, I have my fiance at home. So we're kind of, you know, cross talking over games and stuff anyway. I'm not listening to the broadcast as much. I'm, I'm partial to, you know, the Mavs crew, I think is great. The Timberwolves crew, I think is great. You know, there's certainly ones I, I'm, you know, I think the Raptors have a good announced crew, uh, the Brooklyn Nets. There, there's certainly ones where it's like, oh, you know, if I'm catching that broadcast, I'm more likely to leave it on. But just for my own sanity's sake, and, and as I was saying with Twitter, it's sometimes the same thing in terms of if a broadcast paints a play a certain way in terms of who did the right thing or the wrong thing, you may come up with a totally different conclusion if you watch it on mute. It's, it's really kind of amazing how that part of it ends up working. Evan, any final well, things? Well, no, you really answered my faculty question at the top. Like, I was definitely curious about that. Um, <laughs> if you play, do you play Smash at all? I, ha- I mean, I, I've had stages of my life where I was big into it. I was probably more into like the, either the N64 or the Wii kind of iterations of that game. More so recently, I ended up buying it and then I don't know anyone who plays. So it just kind of sits oh, around. If you ever want to play, dust. let me know. But I was just curious if you were a Falco mate on there as well. But I mean, if you ever want to blow off the dust of your Switch, uh, I'll play that because playing <laughs> Animal Crossing with Chris is, uh, it, it's fun, but we're on the breath of the wild buddy I, i'm in 2017 like full go. stop now okay hey, these these are prime times for nostalgia like dig up all your favorite games whatever comfort food you exactly. need go find it yeah yeah please do that um but rob thank you so much just as we got here just tell everyone where they can find you and and a little bit about the the I, you're on the group chat podcast on the ringer tell everyone a little bit about that yeah, you can listen to us uh, on the Ringer NBA show on all your podcast feeds. I'm on the Wednesday show, but there's great shows throughout the week. You can find my writing on theringer.com, and, and you can find me on Twitter at Rob Mahoney. Please go check that out. There's also uh, a SI podcast that he did that is one of my favorite basketball podcasts ever, and you will learn a lot from that. Um, it's Breakaway, right? I'm misremembering the name. No, that's the right one. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, please. It's truly one of the the most inventive basketball podcasts that I've listened to, and I was. It's one of those things I got a lot smarter from listening. So go check that out, um, and and check him out on the Ringer. I guarantee you, you will be a smarter basketball fan for reading Rob and being off the world. But Rob, thanks again so much. Of course, thanks for having me. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.